This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. Today, with Jonathan and Julia Priedis from Ranking the Beatles on the Beatles Christmas Recordings. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Today I'm feeling Christmassy because I've been listening to Dolly Parton's A Holly Dolly Christmas. I'll talk more about that in a minute, but this is also a special crossover episode of 12 Songs as I'm joined by Jonathan and Julia Priedis, the hosts of the Ranking the Beatles podcast. Jonathan is a New Orleans musician who appeared last season to defend Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time, along with Jake One from Tuxedo. And this year, during the coronavirus shutdown, he ranked the Beatles songs and started counting up from the bottom of the list on Facebook. It sparked enough conversation that he decided to turn it into a podcast with his wife, Julia, as co-host and the voice of reason. The Beatles never recorded any Christmas music proper, but they did record yearly fan club-only greetings that became more elaborate as time passed. I've invited Jonathan and Julia to 12 songs to talk about these fan club records, their significance, and, in a nod to their podcast, rank them. We'll get to that in a minute, but as I said at the top, I've been listening to Dolly Parton's new Christmas album, A Holly Dolly Christmas. It's her third, and on paper it shouldn't work. The album has a sheen of cutesy that starts from the title, and Dolly's performance pushes the gaiety. She's laying on the Dolly persona hard, and that, along with the abundance of guest stars including Miley Cyrus and Michael Buble, had me wary on first listen. My experience has been that the more guests an album has, the more likely the star is to be overshown, as he or she is usually a good host to make sure the guests get treated properly, often at their own expense. But that's not the case here. First, no one outshines Dolly, and perhaps because she's banked so much goodwill over the years, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. By the end of Holly Jolly Christmas, I'm with her. It takes a moment to adjust to hearing her age and her voice at times, but that texture does some work in Dolly's favor. It humanizes her and connects her to your mother or your grandmother so that the songs sound like affectionate gestures. I'll return to her 1984 Christmas album, Once Upon a Christmas with Kenny Rogers, when I want Christmas music from Dolly. But Holly Dolly Christmas is charming, and coming home for Christmas dials down the exuberant good cheer to more manageable levels for a song that, like thousands before it, looks home to getting home for the holidays. From Holly Dolly Christmas, this is Coming Home for Christmas. Mama's in the kitchen, Christmas on the stove. Daddy's in the woodshed with axe and overcoat. Everybody's helping. To place and trim the tree The picture's almost perfect It's only missing me But I'm coming home for Christmas Save a place for me I'll arrive Beneath the tree 
now to Jonathan and Julia Priedis from the Ranking the Beatles podcast. One note up front, these tracks aren't commercially available. I've found them all at one time or another on YouTube, and if you poke around on the internet enough, it'll give you everything. If you want to find them after our conversation, it's not that hard to do. With that in mind, let's get to Jonathan and Julia. Jonathan and Julia, thank you for joining me on this special project. Likewise, thank you for uh, for doing this. This will be fun. Happy to be here. Good to see you. So this is my first uh, my first crossover, and I think this is nice. Uh, and and I could not be happier to do this because the Beatles Christmas music, the Beatles Christmas recordings, are the most irrelevant Christmas stuff <laughs> by a major artist. Valid. And, but at the same time, I guess one of the reasons I'm fascinated by them is because it's such a transitional point that Christmas music before this is one thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is the music in a lot of ways. That's, that's the Christmas music that has endured that the, the Christmas canon is all sort of largely defined before, uh, before the Beatles. Right. And and then after that, songs sneak in and songs find their way into the canon, but they are they never do it with or rarely do it with the same lack of self consciousness that you, you that you once had. Yeah, and I think I think maybe also the same universal acceptance and love, maybe from the listener. I feel like it's a lot easier to please people with like your Bing Crosby's and things like that versus wonderful Christmas time or happy Christmas or, um, you know, any of your more modern Christmas tunes, I think are a lot more divisive maybe. Yeah. Why are people so salty about like wonderful Christmas time and like new, like why they get so mad. Well, that song's a whole other thing as Alex and I have talked about many times (laughs) last, last, uh, last season. We chewed yep. on that one for a while, and but but I do think part of it is you know the your point that everything of, of before a certain time is a kind of sound that we've all kind of accepted, and it's kind of you know the sound the nostalgic sound of Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and wonderful Christmas time has a synthesizer, mm-hmm. a very <laughs> insistent, very specific synthesizer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that for some people, that is absolutely not the sound of Christmas. Yeah. That's fair. And, and then from there, you, I, I think productions are very dated also in Christmas songs. And only maybe in recent memory have you gotten people who were trying to kind of do like a throwback to a more traditional thing. Like maybe it's like, you know, and I say, I say recently, but starting with maybe um, like Harry Connick Jr., in the nineties was doing more of like a Frank Sinatra thing. Michael Buble carries that now, but then John Legend does it. And uh, Rod Stewart does more of a traditional thing. So you get those kind of attempts to, to be less modern and more traditional. And those kind of, I think in some, in some instances, it's kind of sneak into that traditional Christmas canon a little bit. Right. They can let one in under the radar. Yeah. (laughs) It's well disguised enough to not be super new. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's interesting. I've been recently writing about um, 
about Wham's Last Christmas. And you think about that's 1984. And again, mm-hmm. and it has such a specific sound. And it is yes. so, you know, late new wave. And uh, and it's so weird because even, even as a composition, it's not Christmassy. Right. Except it talks about, it has the word Christmas in it. <laughs> but like, I don't... And sleigh bells. It, it has sleigh bells. And sleigh bells. But it's always struck me as the most un-Christmassy Christmas song. Right. Though they released it December 3rd. And so I think when you call you call your son when you put it out in December, and mm-hmm. you call it Last Christmas, I think you're kind of thinking of it as a Christmas song. Yeah, yeah, I can so, see that. So, anyway, I do love that song. Though. How long does it take for something to like make its way into the canon? Like, uh, you know, like these songs are from the '80s, which is now close to 40 years ago, you know, like they're getting, coming up to being like 40 or so years old. Yeah. Like how long until they're those nostalgic, I mean, for me, they already are like, right. you know, I was a child in the eighties. So like those were songs from my childhood, even though they were new then I was a kid. I didn't know anything. <laughs> so like they, they're nostalgia for me. Like sure. how long until they're people just get over it and accept them. <laughs> oh. No. oh, I think this completely happened uh, that. Uh, okay. That, I mean, in England, it now, in the last two or three years, it has been in the top 10 in December. It returns to the top 10 every year. The last changes in Billboard charts have allowed old songs to return. And because of streaming, Christmas songs now actually just flood in. And I think think last Christmas made it to like 11 or 12 last year. And so... Last year was the first year ever that Mariah Carey's uh, All I Want for Christmas is You made it to number one. And I won't be surprised. I don't think I don't think Last Christmas has a number one in it, but I would be amazed if it didn't make it into the top ten. Because exactly because yeah. I think, you know, who is nostalgic now? And you know, what what age groups are now moving into a realm where you now are actually sort of form a, you know, a substantial sort of you know, listening, uh, listening block, and you become an audience that, you know, that uh, Magic 101 and all the all Christmas stations <laughs> start shooting at. And yeah. so, I don't want to yeah. be that guy, so, uh, but it's coming. You, you are that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're there. Yeah. Live yeah. With. Settled. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to back to the Beatles here now, these saw these recordings, we should be clear up front that these are not conventional Christmas songs. Right. That Jonathan, you want to tell us the story behind these recordings? Sure. So the kind of basic history is um, Brian Epstein. I'm sorry, Brian Epstein pushed the band to record a fan club only release every year um, that they would send out on a little, I think it's five inch by five inch square flexi disc, um, and it's just kind of three to four minutes of them ad libbing, clowning around, and wishing their fans. You know, thanking them for the year they've had, wishing them a Merry Christmas. Um, it's just a way to kind of further connect the artist to the fan, uh, which nowadays is like super commonplace. But in the early 60s, this was kind of a new thing. Um, so it was kind of something that at first, you know, and as you listen to the progression, they're super excited and giddy about it. And then it gets to be a little bit more of like a slog and something they have to do in the middle of like a 12 hour session. And then it's something they have to do when like they'd rather be like, getting high then it's something they have to do when they don't really want to be talking to each other so you really see as these records go on the progression of the band 
on a very high level, like on a, on a much bigger picture. Um, but yeah, they're very much these little weird kind of, you know, few minute little glimpses into um, the Beatles as comedic radio hosts almost. It's kind of, they're very influenced by like the goon shows and like the Spike Milligan things that they grew up on. Um, some of them are almost kind of like proto Monty Python type things. Um, some At some points they kind of go into the same um, kind of audio uh, sound collage of like a revolution nine. Um, so they're all very different. They're all very, very weird. Um, but I can imagine you know, being a teenager and getting this personal thing from your favorite band that like only you and a certain group of people get like, that's gotta be super, super cool. Right. Like when I was a kid and I was joining like a fan club for a band, like those little things you got were like those little tchotchkes were the coolest things. Cause only you and your friends had them. Right. But like to get like that one, to get a record that no one else has, like that's super, super cool. And I think all that does is just further connect the artist to the fan and I think that's probably something that fed the proverbial beast that they grew into and what keeps it even now to be such a massive uh, connection for people. Like they just created this insanely large and tight connection. See, now we'll talk about this as I hear sort of a slightly different story when I listen to them. Okay. But, but I think one of the things I think is interesting, and I, gotta, I have to ask Julia, have you listened to these already in preparation for this? And what did yes. you think? I thought they were awful and I <laughs> could not wait for them to end. And I actually was like, I got a great photo of her. <laughs> that she was listening to. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there wondering like, okay, so they sent this out to connect with their fans. Do, <laughs> Jonathan is showing Alex. The I'm going to have to post this. <laughs> with this just very perplexed face while we were listening to them. Um, I, I found myself wondering, like, did the teens that they were aiming this towards, like, actually like this? Or did they like it because it was just, like, an extra thing that only their friends have? Like, was it, is it good? Or is it special? See, I think, and, and what I actually, I expected you uh, that I was kind of hoping you would say something like that. Because, <laughs> because, because partly, I think, you know, one of the things that's useful to think about is that only one actually went to American uh, fan club members. All of them went exclu almost exclusively to the British fan club members. And I was thinking while listening to them just how British it was. It's, and, yeah. And, yeah. For, and I had to go back and like listen to some Goon Show episodes. Goon Show was a radio program in England. It was uh, Spike Milligan, uh, uh, Peter Sellers and Henry Seacombe, and it has its own anarchic sensibility. But you could, uh, and you realize this was stuff that was in the common language, the common sort of cultural language. And so what they were doing probably didn't seem as odd to an audience in the 1964, 1965, that were right. teenage British kids as they mm -hmm. sound to us now. Now, with all of these references erased, we, you know, in England, Goon Show really never translated. You only went back to listen to Goon Club, or Goon, uh, Goon Show, if you were a Beatles fan, and you wanted to know, yep. I've heard about this thing and that thing, yeah. and so... Because it's, it's that dive of, like, where does their sense of humor come from? Because their sense of humor is so uh, important to 
their kind of story and their ethos, uh, especially if you're looking into, if you're watching A Hard Day's Night, um, you're kind of wondering where do these personalities come from? And then you hear about The Goon Show. And for me watching it, I'm sitting here going, I don't really know what's happening. I don't get this. This is really strange. Um, at some point, you do kind of find it like irreverent and goofy and funny, um, but maybe not quite as funny as they would have found it in real time. Right. Like, and I don't see how it ever would have treated mass to the American culture at that time. Yeah. Which year, which was the one year that Americans got it? Uh, in 70, when it was when they put all of them on an, on one disc, I thought, right? Is that correct? The uh, first one, I think 63, also went out okay. to American audiences. Okay. 63 okay. went out in edited form in 64, actually. So okay. they heard the first one, but they heard it a year late. And then in 70, Apple put everything on one full album and sent that to all the fan club members. And then that was... That was it. That was the last thing right. I got. Interesting. So yeah. we're not going to hear any of them in their entirety because because they're actually they're longer than you remember. <laughs> they, they're probably not as long as they, <laughs> they felt. Go on. They're not as long as they felt to you, Julia. But, <laughs> but, yeah. they, but most of them, most of them come in between seven and eight minutes, which is mm-hmm. a little bit substantial. And um and you do need a little patience. There's no question yeah. that uh, you're hearing. Tell you, we'll worry about what we're hearing, and let's get into them. Tell you what we're going to do. This is going to be a little bit unusual for for my show, but since your gig is ranking Beatles songs, mm-hmm. I actually have ranked the Christmas uh, recordings from the one I okay. like least to the one that I like most. Okay. And so what we can do then is we will go at them in the order I ran them, the order I've ranked okay. them, and we can talk about the song and then talk about whether or not we think I'm have, have over or under evalued uh, valued that one. All right? Love it. The tables have turned. I like it. I like All right. it. All right. Let's see, let's see where y'all are at with this. Okay. So we're going to start. My number seven choice, my least, the one I was least interested in, was 1964. The first ones, the early ones were actually written and officially mm-hmm. officially written by Tony Barrow, who was their PR guy. And so he wrote it and produced it. He basically wrote a script, which he handed to them, in which they properly just sort of ignored or started riffing on. And so we're going to start and hear sort of the beginning of the 1964, and then we can talk about where, why, what we liked, didn't like, and how that landed for you. So, okay. so here we go. Everybody, this is Paul, and I'd just like to thank you all for buying our records during the past year. We know you've been buying them because the sales have been very good, you see. Don't know where we'd be without you, really, though. In the army, perhaps. Oh, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the records <laughs> as much as we've enjoyed melting them. No, 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 that's wrong. Making them. We're in number two studio at the moment at EMI, taping this little message for you. Yes, we are. So we, we are, indeed. I just thought I'd make the... This is the same studio we've used all along... Since the old days of Love Me Do. Many years ago, it seems. Oh, those are the days. (laughs) Well, that's about all, I think. (laughs) Except (laughs) to wish you all a happy Christmas and a very new year. 
Now I'll pass you over to John. John. <coughs> John, John speaking. Thanks all of you who bought me book. Thank you folks for buying it. It was very handy. And there's another one out pretty soon, it says here. Hope you buy that too. It'll be the usual rubbish, but it won't cost much. You see? That's the bargain we're going to strike up. I write them in my spare time, it says here. It's been a busy year. Did you write this yourself? No. It's somebody's bad hand wrote It's been a busy year, Beetle Peedles, one way and another, but it's been a great year, too. <laughs> you fans have seen to that. Page two. <laughs> Thanks a lot, folks, and a happy uh, Christmas and a merry goo year. What did y'all think of 1964? So, out of the seven shows... I have 1964 at number three. Wow. Okay. Yeah. What did you like so, about it? What, so I like, I think it's, it's kind of, for me, it's peak um, Lenin humor and sarcasm. Uh, you know, the bit where he's reading through the script and goes, <laughs> page two. <laughs> I, think, I think that's hilarious. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think their humor on it is very, you hear a lot of stories about how, as a unit, they were so insular. And they had their own language. And like when they needed to close ranks, no one could understand what they were talking about. And I feel like this is almost a peek into that communication where the four of them are just, they're just working on each other. Like, even though they're addressing the fan, they're just trying to make each other laugh. Right. Um, I think they're in the midst of all the insanity of like the peak of the insanity. And they're just trying to make each other laugh to get through the thing. Um, and there's a, there's a, a joy to that that I think is at its peak on this particular recording. Um, I do think it's also really funny that Paul's first thing is like, thanks for buying the records. Like he's focused on the sales from the word go, right. which is so Paul. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think. And then Ringo also sounds like a grandfather. <laughs> he's like, it's been a, it's a funny year. Oh, he's the only one that like took it seriously at all. Like he does like, his best. Is he yeah. always 60? Has yeah. he always been 60? What he's Mr. Happening? Conductor in 1964. <laughs> um, but I think that I think that's like peak Beetle Joy for me, where they're just working on making each other laugh and trying to have fun with it. What do you think? Where would you put it? Yeah, I have actually like sixty three and sixty four tied as my top. Ooh. Yeah, because ah. I I really loved like the audio is like fuzzy and kind of crappy in a way that feels just like very warm and nostalgic and you know <laughs> like the the recordings are very loose like they've you know, maybe had quite a bit of eggnog and, <laughs> <laughs> and it feels, you know, even though they're like reading off of a script that someone else wrote for them, obviously, because they're children. Um, I mean, they're still kind of <laughs> our children. Um, they, they make it funny. They make it theirs. They take someone else's words and, you know, treat it kind of like the shithead kids that they are, you know, at that point, they're like young dudes who really haven't been told no who <laughs> you know they're like super famous and can do whatever they want and get away with it and they act that way so it's very like authentic to themselves i thought they were hilarious the, the page two particularly like cracked me up it's so subtle it's yeah like, it's just so I was, like it, i legit like laughed out loud at that i was like that's brilliant See. um and then they they mentioned uh frida kelly was that in 64? 63 is what that they was call in 60, it. Uh, shoot, okay, That's well, okay. I'll touch on that in 63. But, um, yeah, I, I thought... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just thought that they were very, 
like more authentic. Like, I guess, like you said, as an American, I could identify with that humor more than the later years where they got sort of Monty Python, Goon Show-esque, mm-hmm. where it was like a bit lost, not a bit lost on me, completely lost <laughs> on me. <laughs> yeah. Now, I guess why it didn't work for me is they sounded like, like for one thing, it's the, it's the shortest at mm-hmm. four minutes. And mm-hmm. it feels to me like they can't wait to get done with this. It, yeah. That, yeah, like when I hear them, the first, the first one, it sounds like they are they're 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 in for it. They're not in, entirely sure that they buy into just this kind of like naked fan service. But mm-hmm. they've had the kind. I don't of know if they ever do. Yeah, and, and I don't so, think they ever do. No. That's the thing. Yeah. But, you know, the first one, they seem to be more sort of engaged. This one, it feels mm-hmm. like they're ready to be done with it pretty fast. And and so, yeah. for instance, I think John's funnier in other ones. I mean, I get it. And it's and he's clearly, this is in a lot of ways the most linear. And mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, it is the easiest to hang on to, partly because it is the shortest. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot sort of to like about it. Um, but it is also, it feels like the point at which you can really hear them pretty clearly starting you know having a very hard time dealing with this with just this whole project the idea that we're going to stop we're we're in the studio and we're going to take you know 15 minutes to bang out some kind of sort of fan service uh recording and so it doesn't necessarily say for so for me it feels like they're not terribly engaged in it but they hadn't found they were neither as engaged as they were the year before but they hadn't found the next thing to do with it either. So for right. me, it feels like it's a betwixt and between that's neither crazy um, nor you know inventive. And it so it feels a little bit like them on autopilot, um, which is right. okay. I mean, it's still I'm still entertained by it, mm. but there are other ones that entertain me more. I think there's an element to that detachment that they have to it that I am really drawn to in terms of their humor um, where it's like, they're not, they, they, they obviously don't really care to be doing what they're doing. So like to make it pass, to make the time pass, they're just kind of working each other. And I think that I really get into. Sure. Personally. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. And, and I got to say one of the other things, one of the things that's a consistent in all of these is that, if music shows up, it almost never shows up in any kind of sort of functional, simply deliver pleasure kind of uh, form. In this one, right. like in this one, they finish up with some old British, uh, you know, some old British uh, traditional song. Them, them sort of shouting, you know, "Oh, mm-hmm. can you wash your father's shirt clean?" And it was <laughs> like, first off, yeah. that's like such a, a sort of very specific reference to British culture that again hasn't translated at all but mm-hmm. y- they're they're also shouting it like they can't imagine singing this song seriously right and and that kind of goes through all of this they treat almost all the music in these as if they couldn't imagine treating treating music seriously and certainly treating christmas music seriously so right. mm-hmm. and even when they do like in 67 when they do christmas time is here again like even then the vocals are still rather of a piss take which i think is kind of funny yeah my number six was 1969 by 1969 that they had broken up 
And mm-hmm. so unlike, so this was not the the guys in the, in a studio together that the, everybody recorded their pieces separately and yep. then somebody else did the job of welding it together. Pardon? BBC DJ Kenny Everett. Kenny Everett, that's right. the one that did that. Yes. Yep. And so, so I'm, the pieces are interesting. Yoko makes an appearance. Uh, Yoko makes a lot of appearance. Yeah. It's really all John and Yoko. Yeah. Uh, so I've got this one at number seven. I think because it's the most ununified one of them all. Um, you know, it's really, it's the John Yoko show for the most part. Because at this point, they're documenting everything that they do. They're recording things constantly. Um, so that's kind of full on display. They're turning in so much stuff. George is barely there, if only to just say Hare Krishna like four times. Um, Ringo is kind of dutifully being Mr. Entertainer. They're promoting Magic Christian. Um, and Paul does kind of like a basic little like Paul 1969 jaunty doodly-doo thing. I thought his little folks one was kind of cute. I mean, it, it was him just, you could tell it was such minimal thought. Uh, it was like, I'm going to give you oh, 45 you seconds. Thing? Yeah, here. Fine, 45 bye. seconds and let John and Yoko do their John and Yoko thing. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it kind of, you know, because it's so disjointed and, you know, they, they don't put it together, can ever, it's something in their circle that puts it together. Like they bring in a DJ who like they're friends with. Um, yeah, for something, for something about that just strikes me as like kind of cold and sad. Now you lads, have you just shout happy Christmas for us this tape? Happy Christmas! Yeah. Well, one, two, three. Happy Christmas! Happy Christmas! Thank you, thank you. Happy Christmas! Christmas is coming. I see that you're strolling in Ascot Garden with your wife, uh, Yoko. But uh, what? Well, uh, do you have any uh, special thoughts uh, for Christmas? Well, Yoko, uh, it is Christmas, and uh, my special thoughts, of course, tend towards uh, eating. <laughs> All right, so eating. What do you like to eat? Well, I like some cornflakes uh, prepared by a Parisian hands. And I like it blessed by Hare Krishna Mantra. Yes, have a wonderful Christmas. Have a jolly new year. Make sure that Christmas comes once a year. Yes, happy new year. All the best. This is George Harrison saying happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. 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 Happy, happy. Oh, good evening to you, gentlemen. Good evening to you, gentlemen. Happy to be here. Good evening to you, gentlemen. I fear, I fear, I fear. Good evening to one and all. I hope you will enjoy. The coming sports day of our life is Mama's little boy. How do you like the garden here? Uh, I think it's simply splendid. Uh, There's one section where John and Yoko are talking, and mm-hmm. they're either walking through sort of fall leaves yeah. or walking through like crusty snow. And you even were like, what is that noise? Yeah, it's very <laughs> strange. And it was like, that is that the whatever they're walking through is louder than they are. Yeah. And uh, it was like, this is. So brilliant, so nutty, uh, but like just so, so not going anywhere. 
that uh, right. at least the others, even the the crazy ones, there's mm-hmm. a certain if nothing else, they're clearly enjoying the mayhem. And yes. um, nobody else might be, but they're having mm-hmm. fun. And this feels, one, there's no sense anybody's having fun. Right. I, I think it, it feels like a continuation of two versions to me. Like, because John and Yoko are just, they're recording everything, they're filming everything. Um, you know, their intent is, you know, very publicly to like document their lives uh, in real time. And yeah, I think, like you said, like they're enjoying creating, they're enjoying like the mayhem of, the, of creating and putting out things as John and Yoko. And this is very much them being like, using the Beatle platform to put out a John and Yoko thing. Right. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, this one, I really felt like they sort of moved on from like hallucinogens to like a stimulant. Well, I mean, John and Yoko are all heroin at this point. I mean, I didn't want to. Do you mean to tell me? (laughs) (laughs) It felt very much like a frenzied and sort of, um, just like on someone on like day three of a Coke bender, you know, or maybe day 13 or 30, who knows, but just like, you know, that everything was all over the place. And then John and Yoko do this whole weird, like kink thing at the end for the last, like, I don't know, five minutes that I was (laughs) like, 20 minutes, however long this shit goes on for. (laughs) Yeah. Like this weird role playing thing. And I was like, this, I just feel uncomfortable. I (laughs) I don't like it. I don't make it stop. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, this one's pretty I'm almost surprised really. that by 68 and 69, they're still doing them. Yes. Because Brian Epstein's dead. Yeah. So no one's there to say like, boys, this is what we have to do to service the fan base. So I don't know if, and by 69, Paul's checked out. Right. Like they're all but done. You know, Paul's in Scotland, not returning phone calls because he's just done with everything. Um, so who's pushing them to get this done? I guess it's probably Neil Aspinall who like is overseeing the business and like, guys, this is a good way to keep, you know, fan club membership coming in to, you know, line the coffers. Um, we need the money. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> to be fair at that point, they do because Apple's hemorrhaging money oh. all the time. And like they, um, that's when they're, they're bringing in Alan Klein to renegotiate their record deal. Um, so money was kind of tight. Relatively speaking, (laughs) John needs to get like the regular Rolls Royce, not the custom painted Rolls Royce. Tough times. Yeah. Yeah. Poor John. So my number five, I have a feeling my number five is going to be one you're going to enjoy more. My number five was was 1963, the the first one. And I I got a feeling that that our difference probably has something to do with, with, with how we feel about the Beatles. So we'll listen to a little bit, and then we'll come back and talk more about that. Good King Wenceslas last looked out on the feast of Stephen As the slow ray round about, deep and crisp and crispy Brightly showed the boot last night on the musty cruel Henry Hall and David Lloyd Betty Grable too. Hello, this is John speaking with his voice. We're all very happy to be able to talk to you like this on this little bit of plastic. This record reaches you at the end of a really gay year for us, and it's all due to you. 
When we made our first record on Parafone towards the end of 1962, we hoped everybody would like what we'd already been our type of music for several years already. But we had no idea of all the gear things in store for us. It all happened really when Please Please Me became a number one hit, and after that, well, Court of Lime is either no. Our biggest thrill of the year, well, I suppose it must have been topping the bill at the London Palladium, and then only a couple of days later being invited to take part in the Royal Variety Show. This time last year, we were all dead chuffed because Love Me Do got into the top 20. And we can't believe, really, that so many things have happened in between already. Just before I pass you over to Paul, I'd like to say thank you to all the Beatle people who have written to me during the year, and everyone who sent me gifts and cards for my birthday, which I'm trying to forget, in October. I'd love to reply personally to everyone, but I just haven't enough pens. In the meantime, Gary Crimble to you, Gary Mimble to you, Getty Babel, dear Christmas, happy birthday, me too. This is Paul here. Everything that John said goes for me too. Especially the bit about birthday cards and the parcels. Because all our homes and offices got stacks of mail last June. Ow! <laughs> well, it was my birthday. Anyway, we're all dead pleased by the way you've treated us in 1963. And we're trying to do everything we can to please you with the type of songs we write and record next year. Oh, yeah. Somebody asked us if we still like jelly babies. Well... We used to like them, in fact, we loved them. And we said so in one of the papers, you see. Ever since then, we've been getting them in boxes, packets and crates. Anyway, we've gone right off jelly babies, you see. But we still like peppermint creams and chocolate drops. And Johnny Mills. I have a feeling you ranked, uh, that you, have, you ranked that higher than I did, Jonathan. I'm at number four. Ah, okay. Why? Yeah. So I dock points from this because it sounds terrible. Like, ah, sonically, ah, it ah, sounds ah, awful. Ah, ah. Um, they're in the best studio in the world, but they argue they must have found the worst microphone in that in the studio. That really makes it a hard listen for me, which I know is like the most nitpicky thing. But um, what I do love about it is it's very much like that early zany Beatles energy. They sound super excited to be there. Um, you know, everyone is, is pulling their weight and they're still having fun with it. Uh, the things I noticed about it, it's very John heavy. And I think probably this is Brian's push. Because Brian's always trying to push John as the leader, uh, especially in the early days. Like his favoritism towards John is like no secret. Like John is his guy. Uh, and I think he's pushing John to be the leader and John's taking the most time. Um, you know, Paul's very pragmatic. He's also the least like ironic and like goofy about it. Like he's very much trying to like be Mr. Business, but also like Mr. Charming. Um, I think Ringo's uh, Ringo comes in and... The uh, first thing I notice is like Ringo's doing his best to like do his job because he's still kind of fresh to the, to the whole thing. And Paul cuts him off super fast and is like trying to push him to be like jokey, jokey. <laughs> and then when Joan comes in, or when George comes in and goes, thank you, Ringo, we'll phone you. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> like it's so dry and good. Um, so th I think this is very much like that early cheeky Beatles humor um, where they're super into it. And they're having fun doing it. Like maybe they're not completely sold on it, um, but that charm is just so thick; it's hard to get past. I just wish it was recorded better. Julia, oh, you know, I think the crappy sound is actually kind of charming in and of itself. Like I, I think they're sort of like crackly and warm, mm -hmm. and it makes the it makes it feel like a little less planned and a little more sort of haphazard sure which you don't want it to sound like one of their records one of their albums because it's 
it's not. It's like this special little treat mm-hmm. that you're supposed to feel special for receiving. So you kind of want it to be like not perfect. It's like DIY, like yeah, like a hand stamped like punk CD. Yeah, like yeah. I, I, I wonder if that was maybe like a little bit on purpose. Like, no, we don't want it to sound like record because it's not a record. This is not our, our polished product. Mm-hmm. This is like a little secret nugget for all our fans that love us so much. You know, the just a couple hundred of you mm-hmm. who have joined our fan club. You know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think they maybe meant, I don't know. I'm putting, I I cannot imagine, but like, (laughs) I cannot imagine that they were working on trying to make it self-consciously crappy sounding. Uh, (laughs) I mean, not like make it sound crappy, but like make it different from their polished albums. I don't know. But I I have to think that part of the reason it sounds so crappy is like on a cheap flexi plastic, you know, plastic disc. Uh, that you know cost you know two cents to make, and then they ship it out in the mail, and it just sounds like crap. I, I like I, I like this for what it is, mm-hmm. but again, that this is I get more interested in the Beatles a little farther down the line. I like mm-hmm. these songs as songs, but as they become, as they begin to transform the material more, I get more in the game, mm-hmm. and so at this point. I'm just sort of not that into where they are and I hear everything you're, you're saying, but I, it doesn't catch me quite as much or I'm sure. not, or, and I'm not as invested in them. And mm-hmm. so hearing them, hearing John be John be ultra John like is fun, but not, not knocking me out. That's not by itself a sell. Um, right. And it's, there are ways where it's beautifully random that almost like as a reminder that this is a Christmas recording that someone just periodically shakes sleigh bells in the back while people are talking. <laughs> yeah, I do like that. I do like that. And, and I got to say, if you hear them in sequence, one running, not quite a running joke, but one sort of running motif is Good King Wenceslas. Yes. And that for yeah. some reason, this is the Christmas song that they loop back to. And, mm-hmm. uh, and there are points where in different, epi- different seasons where John makes up entirely new lyrics. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in fact, if they do any Christmas songs, they almost always rewrite the lyrics in the process. Yeah. Uh, but this was, uh, and, and so, and that's fun. And again, though, they don't that's, come close. I, see, to I enjoyed them. those. See? I find those moments great where yeah. John is, you know, throwing in like Betty Grable into lyrics, yes. like about Christmas songs, you know? Yeah. And then, and what I did, what I did think was funny was even when you get to '69, at the end of the disc where it's John and Yoko talking, John goes back to Good King Wenceslas. Yeah, um, you know, so it's a weird like full circle that it comes back to that at the end. Yeah, that that part I'm actually I'm I'm interested in, and mm-hmm. uh, because it is first off, it is such a long song, and <laughs> and it's not one if, if you actually sing Christmas carols. It's not one where you can just do one verse because it's a story song. And so if you do one verse, you're just, then what? And uh, so another thing that would come through is that John would almost never say Merry Christmas. John, they would almost always avoid saying Merry Christmas, even to the point where, where like Paul would say in another one, Happy Christmas and Merry New Year or Merry Holidays. There's yeah, just, I always found that interesting. There's almost an allergy to saying the words. And in this one, John says Mary Crimble, 
which would become a yeah. thing that he would say often in, instead of Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I guess from my side, one of the things I think is really interesting about these is that there is just this complete inability to take Christmas music seriously. I've thought in the past that this was all kind of a sort of a consciousness shift that sort of starts really with Dylan and the idea where you start to have the artists thinking of themselves as artists. Mm-hmm. But I also kind of wonder if that's overthinking it. And if it isn't really just teenagers, you know, teenage culture in the sixties and the sort of the, the growth of sort of the, you know, a teenage consciousness, a teenage self-consciousness, and that the fact that that's defined versus your parents and your parents' culture means that you would, of course, think that 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 the music your parents love is, of course, corny, and of course is just right. not worth paying not worth taking seriously. And mm-hmm. it, it feels like one of the reasons I'm drawn to these as as sort of as artifacts is I feel like you can hear that kind of whatever whatever tension is going on that led to that time being the clear divider between what, uh, you know, what Christmas music was and what Christmas music would become. I feel like I hear it in here. And even if I'm still trying to sort out the whys and wherefores, you know, we're at least, we're we're at least hearing the moment uh, happen. Right. You know, I I think what you're saying, what what I'm getting is like, if you look at pre- uh, you know, the Technicolor turn on, you know, um, Christmas music is very serious and very sentimental and very um, uh, emotional. And it's, while we look at it as fun, it's very serious. Um, and I think when, like, when the Beatles come into play, they take nothing serious except for what they put on the record. Like, their songs themselves are serious. Performing the song is not serious. Like, when they play it live, John forgets the lyrics to help every time, you know, every goof they're pointing at each other. They're making fun of each other. John's making fun of the crowd. I mean, they don't take that seriously. They don't take themselves seriously on film in the movie. Uh, even when they're playing on like Ed Sullivan, not the first, not the original shows, but when they go back in 65, they're all clowning around on Ed Sullivan. Like they don't care. Uh, I think it, they're showing a shift of, not taking yourself seriously, you know, and that not everything needs to be so weighty and serious. Like Christmas music should not be a serious enterprise. It is a goofy, fun, sellable thing. Um, And I think you're seeing that kind of shift. And even though it doesn't necessarily go out to the masses, because it's just a fan club thing, I think it puts that idea into the heads of people that are hearing it. um, And it kind of grows from there into something that, you know, it can just be fun. It can be whatever. Anything can be Christmas music. Right. If you say it is. We will move forward to my number four. Okay. Which was 1968. And it was this was the first of the ones produced by Kenny Everett. Mm-hmm. And we'll start with it for a moment here, and then we will talk. Hello, this is a big high and a sincere Merry Christmas from yours truly, Ringo Starr. (laughs) 
happy Christmas, happy Easter, happy autumn, happy Michaelmas, everybody. Happy Christmas, everybody, to you. I'd like to wish everybody happy Christmas this year of 1968, going on 69. Happy Christmas, Happy New Year, all the best to you from here. Everybody happy Christmas, happy new year From there to here Happy new year, happy new year Happy new year, happy new year So first off, one of the things that strikes me with this one Is that I feel high listening to this one yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the the sped up tapes, you know, a lot of loops and things. Like it, it's almost a continuation of Revolution 9. Yeah. Yeah. There are that I like it. There are segments that knock me out that mm-hmm. uh I just love hearing them like spin Helter Skelter at 78. Uh yeah. that knocks me out. That the extended passage of somebody doing an impression of Tiny Tim. And then, I've heard that is Tiny Tim. Oh, oh! I, I hope that's I've true. heard that is Tiny Tim because when George records it, he's over in New York with uh, with Dylan and the band. Right. And from what I've read, it is Tiny Tim. Wow. Oh, that's that's so Which, cool. Like, good grief. Either way, it was completely necessary, <laughs> and I could not wait for it to end. Oh, see, I <laughs> I, will I, say this. I could have because uh, wait, we should say that Tiny Tim is singing Nowhere Man. And yes. so he sings "Nowhere Man" completely seriously, just uh, uh, playing on playing ukulele, which which is Tiny Tim's instrument. So that is well, and that's possible. Tiny Tim's thing. Is like he does it also. Like everything is serious. Like right. he he's not there like joking. Like he's performing it as a serious thing with this ridiculous voice and this look and this thing. Uh, and that's just his game. That's his gimmick. Yeah, it just what he does. So I have to say, I was so there for that because it also at this point. <laughs> First off, we are, you know, we're in 1968. The Beatles don't like each other anymore. And this just, everything feels like it's potentially meaningful. And like, this seems like somebody throwing an elbow to, uh, to like rip on that song by having Tiny Tim sing it. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so I like that. You have John and uh, have John telling the story of Jock and Yono. It's like a a kid story. Friends. Yes. And and that's where where you are right where like he is throwing the dagger there when he talks about you know their beast friends and he's talking about the way that they're being treated by the other Beatles. You know that's him like yeah. getting his little jibe and his little his little jibe in there. And I think George's thing is like George's way of going. Well, you're not going to give me any more time on the record than you've already agreed to. Uh, so now you want me while I'm on vacation being you know fawned over by all these artists that are my peers. Yeah, you want me to give you some shit for this Christmas record? Fine. I will give you something for this Christmas record. Tiny fucking tip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I think that's George's way of giving the finger to the other guys. Yes. 
And and that's what I have a newfound appreciation for this episode now. (laughs) (laughs) It's all just a bunch of middle fingers to each other. Now I like it a little bit better. (laughs) Where did you have this ranked at? Oh, this one was uh, sixth. I had it at six too. (laughs) Oh wow! Oh yeah, it's it. This one in sixty nine are like the down end of the of the ride you know like sure. you can you can tell they're not doing it together and the fun of that is gone um the fun of what the records were i think is not there and now it's just kind of a, a collection of of things and that loses some of its charm right me. see and for me because i'm sort of less invested in them individually mm-hmm. that i like the fact that this one feels like there's a lot going on and there's a good chance that if you if you know the codes, if you if you if you are up on if you know the references, if you could do you know sort of carbon date it and you know where everything's happening, you're hearing a lot more going on than is obvious. And so, as a Christmas experience, very meh. If you right. are if you're if you're in love with the Beatles, also is kind of sad. Uh, but yeah, as just as an audio experience is like. There's a lot of cool weirdness going on here, but I also felt very high listening to it. And so you know yeah. where they were. I feel like, you know, when they created Apple, the label, they created a sub label called Zapple that was going to be a home for experimental recordings and spoken word, things like that. I feel like if they hadn't pulled the plug on Zapple, well, if, if Alan Klein hadn't pulled the plug on Zapple, because he was like, this is a waste of goddamn money. <laughs> um, I think this is the kind of stuff you would have gotten on that label going forward. Right. Are more weird, these kind of collections of things. Um, and I, in a more thought out way, in a, in, a, in a happier group environment, I feel like they could have done some really cool things with this. Right. Like with this kind of style. Um, if they had kind of learned to keep egos in check and keep you know, look after their own house a little bit. I think they could have done some really cool things with this. Um, But this particular one being the only thing that being kind of the only example that we get like that, it's sad. Like it, so for me, like it's not a Christmas experience thing. No, it's just like, it's the end of side two of the record that I bought. (laughs) (laughs) And by this point, Julie is like, I'm going to get a drink. Like (laughs) she's left the room at that point. No, I think actually that was when you took the photo of me looking perplexed yeah it was uh, you are right yeah i think that it was like the tiny tim part and i'm just like why why is this why is this happening yeah why are we here why am i listening to this why (laughs) why Why is this a thing (laughs) so my number three okay is 1965 and this one again this was again also a tony barrow writing and production and so we'll start with a quick sample from it, and then we'll get back. All my trouble seems so far away. Now it looks as though we're here to stay. I believe in yesterday. Don't forget, Christmas is coming. Oh, that reminds me. Let's do a Christmas record. Let's do a Christmas record. Yeah, what should we say? That's um, a good idea. We've got to thank everyone. Remember to thank yeah. Thank you. you can't add too much because oh, you, know, you, you miss. Well, wonderful. thank you, Johnny. It's been a nice to know you. Got to thank everyone for all the presents this year. Yes. And, uh, all for buying the records. Yeah, especially the chewed up pieces of chewing gum <laughs> and the playing cards made out of knickers. On behalf of John and I, 
George speaking. I'd like to thank you for all the Christmas cards and presents and birthday cards and presents and everything, too, as well. On behalf of George and I, I'd just like to thank you all for the Christmas and all the rest of it. Thank you. <laughs> well, Ringo, what have we done this year? I see you haven't shaved again. <laughs> well, Ringo, what have we done this year? We've done a lot of things this year, Paul. Yes. Well, we've been away. Yeah, and like last back. year. <laughs> Come back all right. Aye, we've uh, had a lot of back. presents sent to us for our birthdays and Christmases. Yes, we'd like to thank you. Thank, you, thank you for the presents and the cards. Thank you for the presents. Happy Christmas to your listeners. We belong to everybody, don't you Christmas with a pound of Irish Thank you, John. Down in Virginia with the old black door, we got some, we got some. Down in Virginia with the old black door, we got some, we got some. For the sake of old Lang Syne, that reminds me, Ringo. Yes. This whole concept of the Christmas recording is in many mm-hmm. ways really consistent because with actually the Christmas that uh, sort of Christmas traditions before because really for the most part what you know what so many artists were doing before them when they made Christmas music was they treated Christmas like a kind of like a vacation from their career mm-hmm. and if they had you know like a, like a Frank Sinatra had spent somewhat had spent time you know, singing songs, you know, building up one image, and then he's going to stop and be family guy. Yeah. And, you know, and these people, you know, that you have all these singers who are starting off and they're, you know, they're having one kind of career and then they're going to take, you know, take an hour in around Christmas time to now sing songs to mom and dad and kids and everybody. And it'll all be then January, we get back to being our serious selves again. Frank's back to being a gangster. That's right. That's right. Crushing skulls. So, <laughs> so, you know, so the idea that they would stop and record some kind of message to mm-hmm. their them talking to their fans was in many ways a version of the same thing, just condensed down to a down to a down to a singular, down to a flexi disc. Mm-hmm. At this point, and so and they've they've messed with it but at this point they're just now if i've got to do this christmas vacation uh recording i'm gonna make it be we're gonna make it be us yeah and so tony barrow's script is barely even a framework for this right and rather than even doing it semi-seriously and then sort of goofing on it after as they're doing it they are throwing it away as they go that that they're acting you know like why would i be doing this they're goofing on the whole concept of it uh and and that they seem and they feel really sort of sort of dynamically connected to the world going on like like i love the point where they start singing uh same old song by the four tops and then cut themselves off for fear of like singing too much of it and having to having to deal with the copyright (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, 
I, I'm with you on that. I've got uh, 1965 at number two. Yeah, number two. Yep. Um, I, yeah, this is where it's really them going, you know, we're kind of going to make this our own thing. We don't maybe know what that thing is yet, but we're no longer doing like Tony Barrow's nice family copyright um, or nice family copy, I should say. Yep. Um, I think it's funny that even though that's the plan, Ringo still like plays the straight man and like dutifully thanks the fans for the good year they've had and does that whole yeah. thing. Um, and I think this is also kind of the point where like John goes into like full goon show mode and starts doing like the voices as opposed to just being like sarcastic John. Um, you know, he's kind of just like doing whatever he feels like doing. And they're all kind of doing that at that point. But like, yeah, I find this one to be like, moving into that weird fun side of the Beatle humor that I really enjoy. Yeah. I like, I like the fact that for instance, that they do, they start doing yesterday and again, yeah. sort of shout, sing it, but then also morph it into, I believe in, you know, I believe in Christmas day. <laughs> Christmas yes. day. Yeah. I want a whole version of that. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want on my Chris, yeah. on my Beatles Christmas record is a whole version of Christmas day sung to the tune of yesterday. And I think that's also, well, actually let me, let me flip on to that real quick. Have you heard the record that's credited to the Fab Four called Hark? And it's all Christmas songs done in a Beatles style. Alex, yes. it's everything you ever <laughs> wanted the Beatles to make a Christmas record for. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> it is so well done and so good. Like, I adore this album. <laughs> it's pretty fun. Highly recommended to all listeners. So, um, where were we? So, Julia, where were you on this one? Oh, that's really all I want from that episode. Is, oh, it was yesterday. Yeah, yeah, I just went Christmas Day to the tune of yesterday, like a whole song of it, and that's what I want my Christmas record from the Beatles to be. Yeah. That's it. That's all I have to say about 65. Cool. <laughs> I think it's it's interesting that on the, the, same, the same one where they're saying, you know, we're no longer taking this anywhere near as serious as you want us to, like we're making this our thing they proceed to completely take the piss out of what may be their most serious and grown-up mature recording yeah. uh, to date at that point yeah. and just throw it out the window. And I think that one shows, I think it takes a lot of balls to do that uh, when you're at a point where rock and roll is not quite yet considered to be art. Like we're still maybe a year away from that. Um, but they're the ones that are making the case for that, but they're also the ones like throwing it out the window and making a joke about it. Yeah. I think that takes a lot of balls. Yeah. And, and this is like so my zone with them because also like one of the things I like is the sort of the kinetic nature of both the nuttiness and the energy in this one. That mm -hmm. this is one where they're in the same room. And I guess I liked 63 and 64 better until I heard this. And it was like, oh, this is what they're leading to. And now yeah. this just kind of says what's soft about those two. So on to number two. We're getting close here. So number two. Well, uh, is my for me is 
story opens in Corsica. On the veranda is a bearded man in glasses conducting a small choir. Of this Agnes. Ah, it's wonderful stuff. I like this one. That, I mean, it starts off everywhere it's Christmas and very, very Paul and very musical. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the first ones produced. This is the first one produced by George Martin. Mm-hmm. And so they actually kind of moved this out of the realm of the. Um, out of the realm of just sort of the B studio, sit around and goof. And so there's now some work. This is actually, if I remember, if you can correct me, I read on Wikipedia that this was recorded during the uh, Strawberry Fields Forever uh, sessions. And I believe so, yeah. That it would be, so it would have been uh, October, November 1966. So I think, yeah. Well, let me think about that. No, this would have been during 66. Uh, uh, your revolver's out, so yeah, I, I think this is it's very late, I think, in the year, so I think it's October, yeah. so it's got to be around, yeah, strawberry fields. So, yeah. anyway, and so <laughs> as, <laughs> I, that was awesome. That was a meme just now, <laughs> as, as someone who can't do that, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> I just hope my facts are right and I'm not so. just an idiot. <laughs> oh, you're gonna get so I many emails. Someone, <laughs> someone so will tell emails. us, oh, yeah, we'll know. So, uh, but part of what I enjoy is that on one hand is that, that this is now more crafted and mm-hmm. there is, but they're still having a lot of fun with it. And yeah. so they're clearly enjoying it, but now, and, and it feels like they're interested enough in this project to now get George Martin involved in it and that they've now yeah. heard how to take this idea and move it entirely into Beatlesville. Mm-hmm. And so it now reflects it reflects entirely where they are. And you know, there's points where where it is barely comprehensible. There's right. a story, but I don't know what it is. I can't follow I don't, it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I love the fact that that they've that they've moved into this weird idea and just completely transformed something that was at once, let's just talk to the fans. And has now become, you know, here's who we are. Here's what we're thinking about. Here's what we find funny. Here's our, you know, here's our nod to the moment. And it is 100% all of them. It is exactly where they are, you know, where they are musically, where they are drug wise. I mean, you can't hear these and not be conscious of the drugs. Right. Um, Exactly. And. And again, and you can hear there are you know goon show references that or goon show homages that just don't make it, that don't mean anything to us. But it feels like I, I what I like about this and in, in the top and the number one is that they feel completely in control of you know that the Beatles one hundred percent drive the car on these. Yeah, and yeah. so that makes them really and really interesting to me. Yeah. Let's let Julia go first, then you can do cleanup. Julia, we want to hear, because this isn't, because my guess was that these were probably tougher for you. 
Oh, definitely. Um, I did get like a big, uh, and I guess this is probably because this is my only reference point for British humor. It's like, it, it sounded very Monty Python-esque yeah. to me. Like the the delivery, the sort of the cadence of- A lot of the heritage voices. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Like it just felt very, and I did, they used to put Monty Python on Comedy Central, mm-hmm. like when we were- teens I think I feel like we're in like high school middle school or something so I did watch a bit of that so um it wasn't always funny to me but I I get I now I can see that reference point for what they're doing here um so that one did feel very um Miney Python to me and it also just felt like to me like they got the bad drugs like not the good (laughs) drugs like it was so all over the place and I'm like oh did they get the brown acid or like what, <laughs> what happened? Um, and it's probably just because I don't really get that type of humor very much. Like it's just not very familiar to me and they were probably cracking themselves up and I'm just sitting here like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think you, you make a, a good point there where I think the, the quality of the drugs, I feel like it's a mixture of on this particular, this particular one, I have it at number five. Um, I, I like a lot of things about it. Um, I think it's interesting that it's not really Christmassy at all, aside from the everywhere it's Christmas tune. And you get that at the top and the bottom. Um, that's a, a, it's a absurdly catchy little music hall thing. And I'm also kind of like, I wish they would have made that more of a thing. Like I really would have enjoyed a full length version of everywhere it's Christmas. I feel like it's a mixture of like, okay, when, when I do drugs, <laughs> which is not often, but <laughs> throughout my years when I have done drugs or anything, I like one thing at a time. If I'm drinking, I just want to drink. If I smoke weed, I just want to smoke weed. I don't like mixing things, right? I feel like this is a mixture of acid and speed because they, <laughs> they came up on speed and then weed entered the picture and then acid entered the picture. I feel like they're still on speed and acid here. Because everything is so disjointed and moves so fast that, like, the feel of everywhere it's Christmas is like everywhere it's Christmas. Like, it's very yeah. like speed <laughs> freaky, um, and so it makes it really hard to follow. Um, and like you said, like there is a storyline. There's something happening. I don't quite know what it is though, but I concur with what you're saying. They're like they're completely in control of it. And they're like, okay, if we are going to do this, we're going to make this a thing. It's no longer just like, like you said, lip service to the fans. Like we're artists, we're going to make a piece of art. This is going to be a thing. It's uh, it's quality or it's seriousness can be debated down the line, but we're making a thing out of it. Right. Um, and I really enjoy that aspect of it. I wish I understood it more. I wish it was maybe a bit more... Um, linear but i think we get that the following year right yeah I've, this is like uh what was what's the, um to, okay to come full circle alex this is like how i view love you too versus within you without you or the inner light love you too is that frenzied like look at this thing i have oh my god oh my god oh my god and then you get to like that's my thing I like it. uh <laughs> that's how i feel about yeah. this one okay so For you, you listeners of Alex's of Alex's podcast, yes. when you were on ranking the Beatles and I ranked Love You Too very, very low in the rankings, he disagreed. Yes. And I can't so I came on the show to defend Love You Too. And I will still yes. defend Love You Too. 
<laughs> so you As mentioned you So you mentioned the next one, 1967. Mm-hmm. 1967 is my number one. Same. All right. Julia, let's just go ahead. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like, 65 to 69 are all just like, I, I couldn't even like put them in a good order because I'm just like, they were all on drugs and made them, and I am not on drugs trying to listen to them and comprehend them. But you've done them. a lot of drugs, and so you should be cool with it. Oh, man, your parents will listen to this podcast. Get that face out of here. <laughs> like, my mom might listen to this podcast. Goodness. Um, they're, they're just, they were all lost on me. Like, I didn't enjoy them. I, you know, I 63 and 64, I found to be funny and charming. And, like, you know, they're just being, like, irreverent, you know, young people. After that, I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. I, d- I don't really find it funny. I just find it weird. So everything after it was just, it's lost on me. I'm sorry. It's a slog. <laughs> yeah, it really was. I'm sorry, you guys. All right. <laughs> okay. well, well, let's hear a moment of that slog, and then we'll come back, and <laughs> Jonathan and I will try to defend it. Interplanetary remix, page 444. arrive at BBC House. What do you want? We, we have, have been granted permission, permission, oh wise one. <gasps> Pass in peace. Christmas time is here again. An audition will be held at 10am Wednesday the first in the fluffy rehearsal room. Bring your own. Carry on. Over here. Are you 30 then? Next, please. Okay. So, so to start, I, I just my Christmas music self has to like Christmas time is here again. That we yes. actually mm-hmm. get them giving us as close as we're ever going to get to an actual Beatles Christmas song. And so that <laughs> and right off the bat is like, and it's a good song, and I liked it. Yeah, it's a good song. Uh, it's catchy as all, as simple as it is. It's Catches all get out. Um, if I break it down bit by bit, it's one of maybe my more favorite Ringo drum uh, drum parts. Like I love the sound of his drum kit in this record. That intro fill is just so fat and thick and cool, and he's just like grooving behind the backbeat. It's just a cool song. Um, I love the little breakdown where everyone takes a different line and they've all kind of got their own little uh, vocal thing that they do on it. Um, it's great. I, I love the song. When they released it as a, a B-side, uh, either for Free as a Bird or Real Love during the anthology, it came out on the CD singles for that. Um, and you got like the full version of Christmas Time is Here Again, which is only maybe two and a half minutes. 
Um, but I adore it. It's on every Christmas mix I make. It's a Christmas staple in this house. Julia rolls her eyes. <laughs> is it, is it, it everything around it took all the fun out of it for you? Or you don't I love think, it like yeah. he does? I, I think it's just everything around. I mean, I did actually, like, I did make a note of, like, 67 is better because they actually talk about Christmas again. Like, Christmas time is here again. They play it. Um, and then it seems like they got cleaner drugs, but I don't have any. So I still have no idea what's happening. Like, <laughs> And all I've talked about so far is my thoughts on the song itself. Like, I'm not even into the episode yet. Yeah. I mean, that was really like the highlight. Like, at least it was a Christmas song. It's, yeah. it's a lovely song. It's great. Um, so that wasn't at the bottom of my list. I think I had this one at um, three. I actually had this one at three. Okay. So okay. that's pretty good. Um, so 63, 64, 67. Yes. It's kind of your jam. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think the highlight is Christmas time here again. Yeah. Yes. Th- that carries it. I mean, that was the difference maker for me between 67 and 66. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, the mayhem is pretty similar. Uh, it was I think, also I think the mayhem's a bit more chilled, though. Like, it's easier to follow, like, that there is a production happening and it's some kind of show, some kind of game show. Um you know, it, it comes across more, like we said, it's, it's a little more linear. Um, it's still bizarre and strange, um, but it's kind of like, it, re- it reminds me almost of like, they took like a bit from like the Magical Mystery Tour film and put it on this. Whereas like in a larger context, you'd be like, what is this weird four minute thing? I don't know what the hell that was about, but because it's just this, you're like, oh, okay, that's all it is. Yeah. Um, but I, I really, I this is like the bit, like I, I enjoy that bit of this particular episode too. Yeah. Because it's not quite so frenzied. Um, it's just a little more late. I, don't, I hesitate to say laid back because it's not quite laid back. Um, but it's an easier follow as a listener. Yeah, I agree. I, it feels like it's the one that they are the most in control of. Whereas like once they made the, once they made the move that we're going to sort of take over this thing that they did in 66 then they figured out how to do it better in 67. Um, So, and again, this one is also produced by George Martin. So again, you get, you know, that if you're leaning in, you get as close to the Beatles you want to get, you know, this Mm -hmm. is the Beatles you love. I mean, yeah, I mean, or as you say, 63 and 64, where you get the, the cuddly mop tops uh, Mm -hmm. who have like, you know, snarky senses of humor you get them. The rest of it, you know, say kind of, it all feels like they're either finding their way into this thing, wrestling kind of with this, with this weird thing they're being asked to do, or it sounds kind of like a burden and they're sort of, you know, they're now don't like each other. So the idea of, you know, they don't even wish each other Merry Christmases, much less get together. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you an unhappy Christmas. Not not only can I not say Merry Christmas, I don't want you to have one. (laughs) I think as I, as I'm thinking about 66 versus 67, it's kind of like, I think one of the things that made the Beatles so successful out of the box was they were always in control of their own creation. Like they always were coming from like, they created their own music. Uh, They were doing their thing. They weren't taking over the reins from someone else. Um, If you look at this with 66, they're taking over something that had been created by someone else and trying to figure out how to make it their own. 
So maybe they're not quite as successful the first time. The next time they nail it. And it makes me think kind of also with the films uh, where they make a hard day's night and help with uh, Dick Lester and Walter Shenson. And then they go, okay, we're going to make our own now. And they make magical mystery tour, which to however degrees you want to look at it, it can be considered an unsuccessful attempt at a film. Um, it makes me think had they survived and done another film down the line, would they have maybe had a better connection on that one than they did on the first one? If everybody was involved and everybody was, you know, pulling, pulling equal weight, would it have been a more successful venture, you know, that second time? Because this is again, something where they're coming from someone else's thing and trying to take over that and make it their own. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know, like it seems like they were probably so badly damaged that it's hard to imagine. By that point, yeah, I mean, yeah, but the but the, concept, the, the idea of them doing the concept, yeah, the idea of them like doing Lord of the Rings in nineteen sixty seven or no, I'm sorry, nineteen sixty eight sixty nine is so unfathomable. Just of like getting those four people to agree on anything, right? <laughs> like because it just wasn't happening. Let alone turning that book into a movie. <laughs> like what a nightmare that would have been. Wow. Yeah. But but I got to say that that I like sixty six and sixty seven speak to me, even when I don't get them, because it is what I want from them, which is that I feel like I am one hundred percent hearing where they are, and they are as engaged with this concept as they can be. Thanks to Jonathan and Julia Priedis for the time and the talk. At one point, Jonathan mentioned Christmas Time is Here Again being on the Beatles anthology. I couldn't find it, but Ringo did record it, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. You can find their podcast, Ranking the Beatles, wherever you get your podcasts. Their conversation continues on Facebook at Ranking the Beatles, and you can find me on Facebook at 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm also sharing links to new Christmas music and Christmas music news there on upcoming releases. You can find my coverage of independent music and culture in New Orleans at myspiltmilk.com. Dolly Parton's Holly Dolly Christmas is out now, as is the vinyl 7-inch of Adelheid, the non-Christmassy new song from AF the Naysayer, who provided our theme music. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. For those who'd like their Beatles Christmas music to sound more Christmassy, Jonathan recommends the Hark album by a band that records as the Fab Four. It's Christmas songs retrofitted into Beatles compositions. We'll finish today with the title track from Hark. Talk to you next week. Hark, the angels sing. Hark, the